I have hit record. Me too. Would you like to introduce our podcast? Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rule your list, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. On this week's Good Witches, Bad Bitches, we are discussing domestic violence, suicidal ideation, and murder. So if any of those subjects are sensitive subjects for you, our listeners, please just go in with a heads up. Thanks. Welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Hi. Hi. That's Deanna. I'm Hannah. We talk about yep. ladies in a non-scholarly sense because we're just two plebs who like to learn about new people and tell you about those people. And uh, we are two well-educated <laughs> feminist folk uh, who like to talk about feminine folk. Um, yep, I like that. And and it, it, it's a very informal setting over here, and so. Um, you know, don't use us as a source for your thesis. Yeah. But you can use one of my sources for today. Oh, shit. As a source for your thesis. Oh, shit. (laughs) Because (laughs) I'm going to basically be cribbing an entire uh, piece from 1995 uh, written by Lisa uh, Lindquist from the University of Virginia. All right. And you got this off of From my other sources... I did get it off of JSTOR, so it's a it's a an academic source, and it's so well written that as I because I read a bunch of pieces for today's episode, and ended up being like nobody I'm never going to be able to do it as well as Lisa did. Yeah. So as long as I credit her and don't try to take credit for her work, <laughs> thanks Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Um, but I also got a little bit of information from Wikipedia. Um, there's also a, a piece um, written by Lisa Duggan, uh, which is also from JSTOR, um, that I got some information from. And then I also got some information from Murderpedia. Oh, shit. So I'm pretty okay. sure, Hannah, that you inspired me and reminded me. <laughs> uh, you were like, we, we so infrequently talk about more complicated, less... Um, uh, justifiably uh, favorable women. Yeah, like straightforward, and positive. Like, like it's really hard to justify their actions, even in the world that they live in. And this is kind of one of them. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. So, to, <laughs> I think you're gonna like this one. Oh my God. Uh, Anything today from I want to talk about. Sorry. I want to talk about Alice Mitchell. Do you know Alice Mitchell? Uh, the name is super familiar, but maybe there will be a point when you're talking about her that I'm like, oh, it's that person. But it's I, I don't know off mm-hmm. the top of my head. Okay. Alrighty. Oh, shit. So I'm not going to spoil anything until I get into Lisa's sort of article, really. But I will. Let me just dive in. Yeah. Dive yeah. In. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like on the edge okay. of my seat. So. Yes. So um, Alice Mitchell, her name was Alice Jessie Mitchell, actually. Um, She was born in November 1872 in Memphis, Tennessee. 
some things to note about her as a young girl that apparently she was never interested in toys that young girls were interested in. Um, she was more interested in active things and playing sports and playing with her older brothers. And she also liked horses and taking care of horses. So she was a horse girl, but that's a more modern trope. So Alice's mother tried to teach her sewing and needlework, but she never liked it. Conventional feminine stuff in this era. This is post-Civil War. Mm-hmm. In the South. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, conventions at play here. And it's like if you grow Um, up or if you try and raise your kids to be interested in those things, or at the very least to know only those things, then like for the most part, or I assume a lot of the time, if they don't know what it's like to do other things, they conform. And so that's why we we only hear about (laughs) the nonconformists because there are fewer of them. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently the the nonconformity was one of Alice's most egregious sins <laughs> in the social eyes of her Not time. Not surprised. Um, she was apparently not interested in boys like girls were, quote unquote, yeah. at the time. <laughs> like she um, was supposed to be. And in fact, as she, grew, as she grew older, she was frequently rude to men, <laughs> which, you know, I understand that. Yeah, I, I mean, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read the introductory paragraph to Lisa, uh, Lisa's piece. All right. Um, which, yep, which is called Images of Alice, Gender, Deviancy, and a Love Murder in Memphis. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Alice Mitchell most likely never saw herself as a historical figure, nor as a prototype, nor even as a lesbian. These are terms that have been applied to her after her death. Before her 20th birthday, she was also called a murderess, a madwoman, a monster, queer, a female fiend, a tigress, insane, and finally, familiarly, just Alice, as if no other description was necessary. (laughs) The cause of such name-calling was a murder. It was, however... No ordinary murder, the likes of which Tennessee uh, had filled newspapers with surprising regularity. The murder shocked the nation and caused unprecedented commentary. Journalists speculated that no case in the history of Memphis had received so much attention. In fact, before her case could be tried, the Shelby County Courthouse in Memphis, Tennessee, had to be enlarged to accommodate the number of spectators who wanted to witness the proceedings. Whoa. Attention confirmed the unprecedented character of Alice Mitchell's act. On January 25th, 1892, she killed a woman because she loved her. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Alice, yep. Alice Mitchell's act was notorious on many levels. By murdering Frida Ward, Alice Mitchell transgressed a multitude of boundaries around acceptable middle-class female behavior. Her act can be better understood in the context of definitions of manhood, womanhood, rationality, and sexuality that were beginning to shift around the turn of the century. Her act also took place amid a constellation of other cases of deviant behavior both by and against women, Mm. yet society defined her and her actions differently. Ultimately, The murder of Frida Ward, though the motive was same-sex love, was defined as a gender transgression, a violation of gender roles and behavior, rather than a sexual transgression involving immoral and taboo sexual acts. Because domestic violence and ultimately murder are very male things. Only men are allowed to do that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. 
Okay. Murdering your lover in a fit of jealous rage Oof. was a male thing. Whoa. Okay. Especially a, a violent act. Because the, 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 we'll talk later about how poison was considered like a womanly way to kill someone. Right. And violent acts mm-hmm. are not. Wow. Um, yes. Okay. Yeah. Victorian society's judgment of her act redefined her in a way that reintegrated her into that society in a non-threatening way. In so doing, her redefinition disarmed her, allowing society to ignore the sexual implications of her behavior and maintain Victorian ideas about female sexuality. Uh, 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 uh. Uh-huh. Oh my God, the, the hoops because that we will jump through. Oh, this is what I find most fascinating about this is the mental gymnastics that people went through at the time to try and figure it out like, instead of like the easiest answer is the correct one. <laughs> like, I mean, that's just mass delusion at that point. You're just like. Well, and, and one of the things that I've learned in reading this, and I'm sure Lisa's going to go into more detail than I will, but I'll prime you, is that basically, because gender spheres were so separate at this time, like women were raised separately from men, is that when girls would be schooled together and have sort of sapphic relationships with one another, yeah. that was considered normal, almost <laughs> as if they were practicing for the real thing. Right. It's like boarding school friends. That painting. Yes. Was it, have you seen that and painting? Like, yeah. It's yeah. it's so it's like the title of it, boarding school friends, and it's just these two girls who are like on top of each other, and mm-hmm. it's so perfect. It just encapsulates that like complete unwillingness to understand what what they're doing and why and how and maybe perhaps for some of them it was just like an exploration until they fell in love with a man but yeah the fact that they couldn't comprehend that it could potentially be real and sexual for some of these young women yeah crazy sorry anyway i'll let you continue No, I. this is another reason why I know this is going to be a long one, because I know you and I are both going to have a lot of commentary <laughs> yeah. about everything that's interesting oh. about this. So now I'm going to bounce back to some Murderpedia stuff okay. to kind of give give uh, context for Alice's relationship with Frida. All right. And how serious it was. Tell me. So they were close in age. Alice was two years older. Um, they went to school together and they were neighbors for a time. Um, and so they basically just spent as much time together as they possibly could. Their attachment was very mutual. They seemed to really care about each other pretty deeply. But, you know, obviously, in retrospect, we can tell that Alice was probably more obsessed with Frida than the other way around. Yeah. Um, they were apparently very different in their sort of disposition. As previously mentioned, Alice was kind of a tomboy who eschewed sort of normal normal in quotes here, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, feminine pursuits of the time. Uh, Frida was more traditionally feminine, uh, didn't really care for sports like Alice did. She was tender and affectionate. um, Mm. And and they really loved each other. So like time only strengthened their friendship and relationship. Um, And at a certain point, Frida's family moved. uh, They were both in Memphis when they were neighbors, but Frida's family moved to Gold Dust, which was a small town on the Tennessee side of the Mississippi River. It was about 80 miles north of Memphis. So 80 miles back in the late 1800s is, of course, a huge distance. Yeah, because you can only travel it via horse or foot or train if you're lucky, I assume. Yeah. The separation really distressed Alice. 
But they actively wrote letters to one another and it eased some of Alice's separation anxiety and the love letters were very clearly like love letters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, af- in the summer after Frida moved away, Alice visited Gold Dust and stayed there for like two or three weeks and they would like share room and share bed and all this stuff. Um, and they were pretty open about it. They were often seen like around the house by their family, like embracing and clasping each other. Like it was just obvious that their relationship was uh, romantic. Are you sure it um, wasn't obvious that they were boarding school friends? Exactly. Well, maybe that's how they kind of were able to write it off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, they're just girl. It's just girls being girls, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> gal pals. Oh, boy. We got lots of I'm also going to interchangeably refer to Frida as Fred, because that's what Alice called her, too. So just FYI, that was her nickname was Fred. Um, Fred promised Alice that she would visit her in the fall or winter, and she did, and spent two weeks with Alice in December 1890. And this is, I think, when things kind of started getting a little dramatic on Alice's end, I think Alice probably, I'm not going to like presume to be a psychiatrist in this, but I think she probably had some sort of uh, mental illness that mm. they weren't able to diagnose or treat at the time. It was not lesbianism. Um, <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but, it, you know, um, when Frida came to visit Alice in the winter, Alice was already entertaining some suicidal ideation and potentially it was either like, I'm going to kill myself or I'm going to kill you so that no one Ooh. else can have you. Oh, God. Um, she bought laudanum and considered dosing shit. Fred while she was sleeping in the same bed as her. Um, but she like showed it to her and they like went on a boat and uh, locked herself on the boat. They like she Alice locked the two of them in a room and took all of the laudanum, like drank it all. Um, with suicidal intent, apparently. Oh, fuck. Um, but it didn't work. And um, I don't know the conversation that led up to that. But Alice was sick for days, obviously, after that. Yeah. And laudanum, um, what for anyone who doesn't know, was like a Victorian sleeping tonic or something, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was a mm-hmm. super strong. Was but it, it would make you pass it. What, what was it? That would jack you up. Oh, yeah, yeah. would make you jacked. It but was it, something... it would. It, I can't remember, but yeah, it was, it's not something we use today for good reason. No. Right. Yeah. Um, the reason apparently that Alice claimed to be so distraught at the time was that Frida was flirting with two men, um, Harry Bilger and Ashley Roselle. Uh-oh. And she was wanting to end her existence and troubles and leave Frida to choose to, to be free of her so that she could get married to one of the men that she was flirting with, mm. which God. is interesting. So after the drama of this particular visit and Alice, like they returned to their homes, uh, they resumed their love letters and it all seemed to be going well again. Okay. Um, and in February 1891, Alice wrote a letter proposing marriage. Wow. And apparently repeated the offer in oh. three separate letters so she proposed in three letters to Frida um, and Frida each time said yes. Oh, OK. Um, and so on the third time, Alice said she would hold her to it and would kill her if she broke the promise. Oh, fuck. OK. Cool. This Romantic. Cool. Chill. Real chill. Jesus. I mean, she was obviously very insecure about 
<sighs> the way society would perceive it because it was risky and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah. Alice again visited Fred uh, in the summer of 1891. And by this time she had been like storing up a little bit of money. And so she was able to buy a ring for her. Okay. And so she formally proposed with a ring and Frida accepted it and wore it and was engaged to Alice. Wow. Um, yeah. So Frida's sister, Ada, who was like the woman raising her, keeping keeping her oh. um, as a mother figure, gotcha. um, remarked that they were disgusting in their demonstrations of love for one another. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and apparently, ironically, Alice always felt a sense of shame around like public displays of affection with Frida. Um, she just didn't think it was proper for lovers to be openly hugging and kissing and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Frida didn't agree and would frequently reproach Alice for being ashamed of showing her love for her. Wow. That is, Uh, I, I, I'm so, I mean, obviously like humans are multidimensional creatures. We contain multitudes, but like. It's so strange to hear about someone being so possessive. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe, like, she was so possessive because she felt, like, incapable of showing that she had possession of this woman's heart. You know, like, Mm -hmm. she wasn't able to Mm -hmm. show it to the world. And so she had Mm -hmm. to show that possessiveness or that possession in a, in different ways, in more toxic ways. Yeah. I mean, obviously right. she learned that from somewhere. It's not like, you know, oh, if only she felt like she could be affectionate, then she wouldn't be a violent monster. But um, I'm sure Ultimately, that, like, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm sure that that must have played a part in how jealous she was. Of course. And especially knowing how willing Frida was to show affection, she must have, like, tortured herself with visions of Frida being affectionate with other people. Yep. Fascinating. I'm sure she did. Fascinating. I'm sure she did. Wow. So, yeah. Then this visit happened. They separated again. um, And Frida said she would come visit in November. And at this point, their engagement was a secret only between the two of them. But they had a plan for how they were going to actually legally get married. Oh. And um, as you would imagine, for this time, it involves cross-dressing. <clears throat> I okay. think that's a common yep. theme in a lot of period lesbian pieces. Yep. Um, they agreed Alice would go by Alvin J. Ward so that Frida could still call her by her pet name, Allie. Oh. And Frida was to be known as Mrs. A.J. Ward. So it's still, you know, hmm. it was... Mm-hmm. combination of their names yep um the particulars of a formal marriage and elopement were agreed upon alice was to dress up like a man and have her hair trimmed by a barber get the license to marry and fred was to procure uh, a reverend um to perform the marriage ceremony and if uh, the reverend they wanted declined, they would get a justice of the peace to marry them mm-hmm. and then they were going to run away uh to st louis together where alice was to continue to wear men's apparel meant to try and grow a mustache if it would please fred I okay. don't know how she planned to do that. Um, and she was also going to go out to try and find work to support her wife as a ma- living as a man. Wow. Were there yeah. were there hormone therapies at the time? I don't know. I don't think so. 
not not for not this way. I think it was like I'll cut my hair and make a mustache and I'll shave my body hair and make a mustache to wear or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that would make sense, I suppose. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And and part of me wonders like if that's if that's not what Alice wanted the whole time. Hmm. It's hard to know. Yeah. With our our hindsight lens. Wow. It's hard to know. Um, but in the latter part of June, that summer, after they got engaged, a previously mentioned man named Ashley Roselle, uh, he officially began to court Frida. Uh Uh-oh. Um, and she gave him one of her photographs. (gasps) Frida! Um, And Alice found out, of course, and got really mad. And accused Frida of deception and infidelity. And Frida acknowledged that she was. Oh. Had done wrong. Okay. Vowed unshaken fidelity to Alice and promised to never do it again. Uh-oh. Um, yeah. Uh, so they were planning on eloping. It was just about the time that their plan was going to be set into action. Um, like the plan was that Frida was going to take a boat on a particular night but Frida's sister found some of their letters, Uh-oh. which disclosed the plans, and she was shocked and told her husband about it. And so he, like, stood vigil one night, thinking that it was going to be a man coming, for some reason, to steal Frida away. Oh. Um. So he, like, had a gun and was, like, waiting, and no man came. So... Like, when the boat that she was supposed to get on, I guess they must have been near the river or something, like, whistled that it was here. And he went into Frida's room, and she was there with a suitcase packed. It was the middle of the night, and she was ready to go. Um, and stopped her, basically. And so then they took all the love tokens and letters and the, her engagement ring and returned them to Alice. And Frida's sister wrote a letter to Alice's mother... <gasps> Oh, God. Saying everything, uh, which is, yeah, interesting. Not Ugh. cool. Um, and, but, I mean, weirdly, Alice's mom thought that Frida's sister had grossly exaggerated and misunderstood their relationship. Wow. <laughs> so she, okay. like, told Alice, she told Alice about the letter and gave her her stuff. Um, and Alice just listened but obviously was completely heartbroken. Yeah. Um, like the effect of getting the engagement ring returned and like the prohibition of all communication between the two of them. Like that's, that's terrible. Regardless of like what type, what type of romantic relationship you're in. Can you imagine being a teenager? Cause they were teenagers. How, how teen? 19 and 17. Okay. <sighs> Which, like, if so, they were male, that would have they would have been adult enough to be making those decisions for themselves and to be eloping and oh, yeah. doing all that stuff. All that stuff. Oh yeah. But, yeah. Like, as as young women, they of course are possessions of their family, mm-hmm. and so they can't they can't make those decisions for themselves. Like, yeah, that. So Ugh. Alice was crushed. Mm-hmm. Um, she would cry. All day, she wouldn't sleep. She stopped eating. She lost a ton of weight. um, And she would frequently decline to even come sit at the dinner table. Um, She put all of the love tokens that were returned to her, like, in a locked cigar box and hid it in the kitchen. 
and would often go to the kitchen like at a time that nobody would see her apparently the cook saw which is how we know this happened um and she would like stare at the love tokens and would cry and laugh and just like sit there for hours oh god so she's really freaking heartbroken clearly and already had some jealousy and anger issues yeah um Mm. so like november rolled around and it was when frida was supposed to come visit um and around that time alice clandestinely stole her father's razor um straight razor as people would know from sweeney todd that type of thing um and when she took it she said uh she was thinking of frida she feared that they would try and keep frida from her and couldn't bear the thought of losing her um so in my mind she probably had some ideas of i'm either gonna have to fight my way to her Mm-hmm. Or I'm gonna have to kill her so that no one else can have her, basically. Ugh. God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So that's kind of the setup, basically. The preamble. Oh my god. Jumping back. <laughs> Jumping back to Lisa's article. Um. So Alice and Frida were schoolgirl friends. Um, But intense, intimate relationships between middle class white girls were common and encouraged in the 19th century. Not uncommon for girls to sleep together or express their undying love for each other. Um, In a gender system predicated on the separation of men and women's worlds, women developed deep, intimate relationships that were both sensual and emotional in, uh, in language and content. Considered a rehearsal in girlhood of the great drama of woman's life. Women's love for one another was thought to constitute the richness, consolation, and joy of their lives. Um, uh Uh-huh. And it was probably Um, the only time in a lot of their lives that they got such a relationship. mm Mm-hmm. Because men weren't socialized to, you know, be affectionate or interesting in relationships. And that wasn't the purpose of a lot of marriages. Yeah. Um... And apparently, I just want to point out that Alice was the daughter of a wealthy and honored citizen, and Frida came from a more um, farmer merchandising background. Oh. Okay, so that probably plays a little bit of a role. On the afternoon of January 25th, 1892, Alice called on her friend Lily. They were just, they were very close friends, not romantically involved. Uh, with whom she maintained a friendship to go driving, as was their afternoon custom. Uh, They drove downtown and happened to meet with the Ward sisters and another friend as they were making their way to the ferry, which Joe and Frida Ward were planning to take home to Gold Dust. So Frida was in town Ah. and she saw her. Um, The path was slippery because of recent snow and the three girls walked single file down toward the ferry boat. Frida was last in the line. Alice, watching the three girls descend toward the dock, said to Lily that she had to see Fred once more and ran after the girls. Reports stated that Alice said, quote, I'll fix her as she jumped from the buggy. She caught up Uh-oh. with Frida, grabbed her by the arm and slashed a straight edge razor uh, across her face. Oh. Uh, Joe Ward jumped in to interfere, knocking Alice to the ground and hitting her with her umbrella Alice stabbed her with the razor, slightly wounding her, and then ran after Frida, who obviously was trying to run away. Yes. Um, 
she ran to the nearby railroad tracks and had fallen. Um, Alice caught up with her and cut her again across the face. Finally, Alice grabbed Frida by the hair, pulled her head back to expose her neck, oh. and sliced her throat from ear to ear. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Really violent. That is... Aggressive. Fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um... Some sources report that Frida staggered several feet, while others claiming her head had been nearly severed reported oh. she lay on the ground, writhing in agony. Alice, covered in blood, ran back to the buggy. With Lily Johnson still inside, she drove off at a furious pace. Oh. In the buggy, she told Lily that she cut Fred and wasn't sure if she had killed her, but asked if she had blood on her face. At Lily's affirmative reply... She requested first that Lily wipe off the blood, then changed her mind, saying, quote, no, let it remain. It's Fred's blood, and I love her so. Whoa. Frida, meanwhile, had been carried to a nearby office where she bled to death before a doctor could reach her. Oh, my Sadly. God. Yeah. Um, so Alice was obviously arrested at her home in the company of her parents that night. And sadly, to me, after reading many articles, Lily was also arrested. Oh, um, shit. Even though she had nothing to do with it. Um, they were both held in the county jail um, and were indicted by a grand jury for first degree murder. Both of them. Whoa, um, Lily was like, oh, They shit. thought she was an accomplice. Like, so they tried to argue, I think, that she somehow knew what Alice was going to do and didn't stop her. And, then and the she fact drove that the she ran car. away. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fuck. Um, but uh, Lily obviously pleaded not guilty. Um, Alice pleaded not guilty, but guilty of present insanity. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, they were uh, in the same room. They were not in a cell at the jail while they were waiting for trial. Hmm. Um, and both families... Uh, Though visiting daily with their daughters and appearing with them in court, maintained an unbroken public silence throughout the trial. Um, Lily was given a habeas corpus hearing, examining whether the state had enough evidence to demonstrate her prior knowledge of and participation in the murder to warrant her continued presence in jail. Um, the judge ruled there was evidence against her. What? Despite testimony that she could not have seen the murder from the car that she was in, the buggy. Um... Much of the trial hinged on the meaning of Alice's statement, I'll fix her. Yeah. And many speculated that those that statement showed Lily knew of Alice's intent to commit murder, which I don't think that holds up. Well, like, I know that's that, like, opinion. fix, like, at that time, there, or at least around that time, had meanings like that like the fixes in or whatever the you know there was a, a a spooky intent behind it in a lot of contexts but it it still meant other things too <laughs> even then well especially you know? if she was close to lily as she was yeah then it could have meant lily presumably knew that she loved her yeah um in her way <laughs> Because I, I, right. I ultimately am of the opinion that you don't kill someone you love, but. Oof. Um, yeah. But so 
anyway, <laughs> um, Lily was ultimately released because of her health. Like she had like declining health as she was in jail. Oh. Um, and I think ended up not being, it was like all charges against her, I think ended up being dropped. Um, oh, thank God. Good. Yeah. But, um, uh, Alice was tried for present insanity the following July. So that was like six months later. Alice was in jail waiting. Um, her plea of present insanity required the court to judge her mental state at the time of trial only. The huh. trial would not attempt to determine her mental state at the time of the crime. If found insane, she would be confined in a mental institution until she was deemed sane, at which time she would be returned to Memphis to stand trial for murder. Um, and Lily's trial was dependent on the outcome of Alice's insanity trial, apparently. So if Alice proved to be incurably insane, Lily would either stand trial alone or the charges would be dismissed. And I think they ended up being dismissed, as previously stated. Yeah. Um, so Alice's insanity trial was delayed because of crowded court docket and the defense's need to gather more evidence on insanity in the Mitchell family. Mm -hmm. um, and they, the jury returned a verdict of insane. Uh, Interesting. I wonder like what she did to prove she was insane at the time of trial. What would have proven that to them? I'm, I, I especially given the gender stuff and like how at that time, you know, women, there was the hysteria issue that so many women, quote unquote, suffered from. And I'm sure that it was much, much easier to decide a woman was insane at that time than it is. Well, if a woman was ever in any way behaving outside of what the socially dictated normal things a woman should be doing, like then they were deemed insane and put, you know. Yeah, like deciding she's hard. not interested in feminine, quote unquote, feminine things could be reason right. for insanity. <laughs> At that time, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, um, God. So she was taken to uh, an insane asylum in Bolivar, Tennessee. That doesn't which seem could better. At any time. It's not. Um, and it could at any time declare her fit to stand trial. Wow. So officially, uh, she never went on trial for murder um, because she died in 1898 uh, at the age of 25. Oh. So... Um, it was reported that she died from tuberculosis, but one of the attorneys from the case said that she committed suicide, which by jumping into a water tower, which tracks oh, with her previous yeah. behavior and issues. And given what asylums um, looked like at that time, I, oh, 100% wouldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. Newspaper coverage of the case was unprecedented. Um, the Jackson Tribune Sun, Tribune Sun called the case the subject of more newspaper comment than any other crime that was committed in the South. Mm. Um, <laughs> newspapers' explanations of this act to the public and their speculative theories about the possible motives often directly contradicted Alice's own statements and revealed the fears and anxieties of a community confronting sexual deviance. <laughs> Alice at first stated that she killed Frida because she loved her and never wavered from this line. Yet, news stories and the public at large continually tried to assign more acceptable motives Ugh. for the murder. God. So, two of the theories um, that they tried to use to explain her actions, um, 
both retold the story within the bounds, except of course for the murder itself, of normal heterosexual relationships. Um, the first theory, by far the most common, argued that the attack on Frida was a form of revenge because of jealousy over a man. Oh, what man? <laughs> um, uh, Ashley? I don't know. Oh my god. Um, yeah, je- Alice's jealousy of Ashley's affections for Frida, sure. But, yeah, yeah. Um, Different story. <laughs> yeah. Um, reports of court testimony argued that Frida's sister ended relationship between the girls not only because of the discovery of Alice and Frida's plan to elope, but because Alice and Lily were, quote unquote, wild. What does that mean? So it was more protecting her from friends, quote unquote, friends who would lead her down a path of ill repute, I guess. Okay. (laughs) So it was about a friendship gone sour or because they both were fighting over the same guy. Neither of which is what uh, Alice ever said. She never strayed from that ever. And like. There was a fucking engagement ring and letters to show that they were romantically involved and people were just like, no, 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 no. What what other reason could there be? I'm surprised, though, because it's like, why would you want to humanize a murderer so much? Like, why would you want, like, somebody who you see as being a violent person who perpetrated this horrible mm-hmm. crime, like, why are you going out mm-hmm. of your way to create reasons for her to be more likable to me too. You? It confounds me, but they really did. Um, they really, they really tried to make her as innocent appearing as possible. Not just her defense team, but like everybody, the world the at large. Because I, I think the implications were too scary for them to handle. Mm, that's a good point. That like that women a could fall in love with other women in such a way that it's like that it feels that intense and that passionate but also that they can commit a murder that intense and passionate over Mm -hmm. that kind of love i can Mm -hmm. see how that would be terrifying i mean women have always terrified society and them doing Mm -hmm. something that you've decided they can't do uh would be terrifying Mm mm-hmm um but yeah, no. So, but they also couldn't seem to decide because they also wanted to frame her as a wild girl who was trying to lead Frida down a bad path. So they re- the the mixed messaging is off the charts. Like they could not decide what they wanted <laughs> from Alice Mitchell. Um, wow. Like a local grocer testified that Alice frequently purchased cigarettes from him, ooh, uh, which was something not acceptable for well-bred ladies until the 1920s. Right. Um. They also reported that, quote, and I don't think this is necessarily true. Um, I'll, I'll send you a photo, but maybe it has to do with the ideas of the time, ideal beauty of the time. But that Frida was much more attractive than Alice and possessed many traits of character with which the murderess was not blessed. And oh, so people, okay. also, people also tried to say that perhaps uh, Alice was jealous and attacked Frida out of jealousy and they would use the evidence that she, they slashed her face. Right. She slashed her face as like a reason. <laughs> um, and that I'll fix her takes on the like, I'll be prettier than her sort of vibe. Like I'll fix her face so that no one will ever love her again. Yeah. And they they also would argue that because she was not a man, she was unfamiliar with the use of a razor and therefore accidentally cut her too deeply. But I'm sorry, if you pull someone's head back and cut them ear to ear on their throat, 
That's yeah. not just like, I'm going to disfigure you. That's intent to kill. <laughs> yeah. I, and um, uh, straight razors are not that complicated. They're, yeah. they're knives. Yeah, not when you want to cut someone. Maybe it's a little more complicated if you've never shaved with one and you're trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, if you're trying to shave your face. But if you're literally using it the same way you would use a kitchen knife as a feminine person in the kitchen. Out. Yeah, you can figure <laughs> out what you're doing. Right. God. Um, another theory, not unrelated, argued that there was a mysterious man who followed Alice's buggy and disappeared quickly after the murder. <laughs> Wait. They're trying to say that she didn't do it at all and that she was framed by some other man who did the deed. <laughs> Even though there are witnesses that say otherwise. And she was covered in blood. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, um, God. So all of this obviously illustrated her community's unwillingness to allow Alice to act on her own or to believe her self-stated motives for the killing. Oh, God. Like, she said it. She said it multiple times. She said she did it. She said why. And they were both very simple, cut and dry answers. Christ. Doesn't excuse her, but no. it's, it's like. But like. But if, if she were a man, people would just believe it right away. Right. Yes. Men kill their lovers in a jealous rage all the time. Like, it's baffling to me that we even have to have this conversation fighting for a fucking lesbian murderer's right to explain why she murdered her fucking lover. <laughs> like. It's we, crazy. It's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Just, and, and obviously it, uh, what it does is it preys on stereotypes of female hysteria and doesn't give Alice any agency in her actions, right. which is also un, unfair to her. <sighs> and and again, sort of uh, uh, neuters her, for lack of a better non-gendered term. Like, Yeah. And, and neuters it, the whole concept. Takes away her autonomy. Yeah. I mean, the, like, I don't know. The idea that she can't do it means other people can't do it. And so, right. like, how many how many people get away with stuff like that? Because it's it's that whole, like, women can't be serial killers thing. And because of that, so many, so many people have gotten away with murder. Because, like, we just can't, we cannot wrap our mm -hmm. brains around the fact that someone is embodying a traditionally like masculine thing yep whatever um, lisa continues that it's not surprising that alice's motive was unbelievable to the public um the category of lesbian even though obviously lesbians have existed forever <laughs> um look at sappho um uh, yeah the category of lesbian was only just beginning to be defined by sexologists in europe um like a few newspapers expressed some familiarity with the depictions of lesbian love, like in French fiction at the time. But it would be several years still before clinical information about homosexuality filtered into any sort of public awareness, especially um, lesbian homosexual relation. Yeah. Um, prohibitions against homosexuality that have existed previously in church law defined it only as a series of forbidden acts rather than as an identity or a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, furthermore, the forbidden acts were defined loosely as sodomy yeah. in biblical terms, 
which connotates the spilling of seed or semen in unnatural places, generally any place except a woman's vagina. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, women, this article again, let's remember was written in 95. So like maybe yes. a little bit off in its sort of identity of what defines a woman. But, um, but women not having seed at the time, especially mm-hmm. could not be implicated in these uh, same sex acts. <laughs> oh. They couldn't, by definition, engage in sodomy. Okay. Um, in addition, because women's sexuality was defined only in terms of sexual activity leading to reproduction and thus only possible in heterosexual relations, homosexuality for women was outside the realm of sexual understanding. Like it just didn't compute for these Victorian Americans, Victorian era Americans. God. Um, <laughs> Regardless of whether or not romantic friendships involved sexual contact, they were not considered sexual because there was no possibility of reproduction. So women's sexuality is only hinged on interacting with penises. Just Uh, like, you know, vagina. uh, Oh, my God. Go listen to Cunts Unplugged if you want more about that. But it's the same (laughs) thing. It was only possible, it was only when women's sexual identity and sexual pleasure became separate from reproduction that relations between women could have sexual overtones in the public sphere. Interesting. Um, And it was only just beginning to occur in the Western world in the end of the 19th century, or I guess resurge, because again, it's always fucking existed. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting jacked up. This is... (laughs) (laughs) Like, of course, today we understand categories of sexual orientation that are entirely dependent on the object of your desire, you know, and the perceived right. gender or sex or whatever you want to say. But it does hinge around that. Like, you know, you could be pansexual. That kind of is regardless of gender but or sex, but it's still a part of it. Right. Anyway, um, I'm trying to change some of the wording since we have new terminology today. Yeah. Um, Though, of course, as we know, many people who identify as homosexual conform to a lot of other social norms in most other areas of their lives. Weird. Almost like they're not deviant. What? Um, Yeah. Before the 20th century, however, classification as homosexual was not dependent on one's sexual object choice. Um, The best medical experts of the 1890s described sexual inverts, as they were then called, as people who engaged in inappropriate gender behavior. Oh, such inappropriate behavior was more acceptable in the working class for the middle and upper classes. However, inappropriate gender behavior covered the full range of male and female conduct, including inappropriate clothing choice, hairstyle or job choice. Choosing to engage in homosexual sexual activity was merely one aspect of a constellation of inappropriate gender behaviors and not necessarily the most egregious one at the time. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Furthermore, at the time, and I find this interesting because it's not as gray as we have today, a sexual invert was defined as a quote unquote genetic mix up, a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. Oh. Which is interesting <sighs> and weird. And, and I mean, obviously, today we still have to have conversations with people about how gender identity and sexual identity are two completely different things. Yes. Tennessee newspapers analyzed Frida's murder 
within the context of what they deemed an unnatural love, which was a phrase that appeared frequently throughout (laughs) discussions of the case, but discussions of their love stayed within restricted boundaries that did not cross into uh, discussions of sexuality. Mm. Um, God. Building on norms concerning the sexual repression of Victorian women, Alice's deviance was constructed as a violation of gender boundaries and inappropriate gender behavior. She was vilified because not only had she acted like a man, but she attempted to take on a male role, which was something unheard of for a middle class girl. Right. Um, wanting to marry Frida was only a part of that. Yeah. Like, she wanted to abandon the mainstays of feminine life. She wanted to assume a male identity, including changing the way she dressed, finding a job, and marrying a woman. Which we know, like, upper-class people, like Gentleman Jack, were able to do in a lot of ways. Sometimes. Sometimes. Because she was more upper-middle-class. Yeah, she had money. from the farmer family. Yeah. But, like... I think Americans have always been slightly more uptight. We were a country founded by Puritans. Oh, my God. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So Alice had essentially perverted culturally accepted ideas about love and love relationships, as well as proper male and female characteristics and roles. Yeah. Um, Because, as previously mentioned, like, Victorian society... Uh, for the middle and upper classes was structured around the notion of separate male and female spheres that was slightly more blended down in the lower and working classes um, because obviously sometimes you're, the woman of the house had to go to work because you needed to support your fucking family because you weren't making any money. Yeah, you don't have any choice. Um, like men operated in the public sphere of business and politics while women remained largely in the home creating a haven for men and preserving the ideals of morality and civilization that men could forego in public hmm. that women could not. Um, as exceptionally pious, virtuous, and moral creatures, women were uniquely suited to instill proper values in their children and paradoxically use the same ideology to justify a growing role in the public world through moral reform, which we've talked about on this podcast. Yeah. Women being the ones at the forefront of moral reform, especially in this era and, you know, the decades following. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ideology of separate spheres posited fundamental differences between men and women, which we're still fighting with today, (laughs) um, that went beyond moral values and sexual appetites. The obvious being men were rational, women were emotional, (laughs) men were base, women were pure, men were violent, and women calmed the savage beast. Ugh. Um, Yeah, gross. Um, These basic characteristics defined what men and women were and how they were supposed to behave. And that was continually reinforced in society. Right. But of course, the stereotypes only applied to white middle class families. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Forget everyone else. The other groups, it trickles down, though, because the other groups felt the weight of that expectation. Um, Failure to live up to the middle class standards both marginalized these groups and justified middle class attempts to reform their lifestyles. By the last decade of the 19th century, such strictly defined categories were beginning to erode um, in the Western world. Um, Middle class reformers came in contact with alternative cultural values in the working class that included more relaxed notions of female sexuality. Hmm. In the middle class, increasing numbers of women were entering college. Uh, Female college graduates would also shun marriage in unprecedented numbers, choosing instead to set up same-sex households like Boston marriages. Oh. um, Or work in settlement houses. So they would have, like, big houses just full of working women. Yeah. Um, 
Victorian values, of course, didn't change quickly or easily. We see that values don't change quickly or easily in a society. Fears about the detrimental effects of education on women's health. Uh, Lisa says, did not evaporate until the 20th century. I would argue they still haven't. Yeah. (laughs) Middle class notions of respectability did not fully mirror earlier working class models until well past the 1920s. Nevertheless, change was beginning to occur. Um, But in Memphis in 1892, Victorian values still prevailed. Um, In the South, particularly, these values were rooted in a culture where family was the central unit of society. Um, More so than the North, where community values had an unmistakably public hue as men and women were defined uh, centrally as members of families. In the South, the ideology of separate spheres was magnified by a focus on a family unit. Tennessee newspaper articles reinforce fundamental differences between male and female behavior in many of their non-news articles. Women's propensity for love received considerable attention. Quote, one thing in this world that is constant, the one peak that rises above all clouds, and the one window in which the light forever burns, the one star that darkness cannot quench, is woman's love. A love that is greater than power, sweeter than life, and stronger than death. Okay. Uh, Another article described women as not haughty or arrogant. I know plenty of haughty and arrogant women. Um, Nor supercilious, but full of courtesy and fond of society. Industrious, economical, uh, ingenious, more general to air than man. Cool. Um, But performing more good actions than he. So women make more mistakes, but generally do more good than men. One that I find particularly uh, hilarious and annoying is a a piece that they were talking about, like, gender and music. Because when you start to talk about, like, obviously men had dominated the arts for a long time. But that's, is that not more traditionally feminine? Um, So this (laughs) piece, quote, Man is rugged, stern, contentious, fierce, and by some deemed callous to finer sensibilities. Woman is gentle, graceful, dainty, emotional. Going to argue why men were more often composers than women, the author argued that, quote, it was necessary to soften down his austerity with gentler attributes in order to make him a social being. Woman does not require those refining influences. She is refinement. We may conclude then that man is gifted with poetry and music as ballasts to his otherwise turbulent nature. Yeah, okay. Um, mm-hmm. um, within these boundaries of gender, women's roles as mothers formed the core of female identity which I think is still pretty uh, standard. Um, One author rhetorically claimed, quote, a woman who does not love children is truly, I hardly know what she is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Arguments for women's education argued it was women's rightful inheritance as the intelligent guardians of the bodily welfare of little men and women. men um 
And, you know, returning back to the fact that this is just after the American Civil War, uh, Southern women in particular were extolled for their own peculiar characteristics as the crowning queens of love and beauty. Of course, everybody masculine falls in love with Southern girls. They expect it and receive it as their due. They are a combination of frankness, self-reliance, and coquetry, sincere in their thoughts, true and pure in their actions, and too feminine not to be pleased at man's devotion. Love with them never begins seriously, and they never let it become serious until the man is desperate. What? Um, mm-hmm. Um, but basically what all this is leading to is, of course, the whole um, time period was marred by a sort of panic to protect the purity of the white Southern woman. <laughs> okay. Uh, which obviously the, the threat in this moral panic came from black men. Yeah. And now, apparently, lesbians. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's why you have to grapple so hard with an alternate mm-hmm. explanation, because lesbians are so much more terrifying than anything else mm-hmm. they could come up with. <laughs> right. Obviously, like, a lot of these sort of uh, pronouncements of how women should behave were inconsistent, but they nonetheless outlined a clear picture of what was expected of women um, and men. And obviously, Alice Mitchell violated this in many ways. She enacted the ritual of courtship and marriage uh, with another woman. Yeah. Um, Love of a man and marriage was viewed at the time as a requirement for adult female status. So the prescriptive formula of the day was that adult women's lives moved in a natural sequence from romantic love to marriage, which was the centerpiece of female existence, marriage and motherhood. Right. Alice had the audacity to pervert the progression of a young girl's life. She sullied her, making her a mockery of standards and adult female status. Um, In declaring her love for Frida, she also proclaimed her willingness to sacrifice her relationship to her family. She was willing to give up everything for this girl. Yeah, because she wanted to be the the man, quote unquote, in that relationship, which she was not entitled Mm -hmm. to via her family. Right. Um, the cook, Alice's family cook said, um, at one point Frida declared, or Alice declared that, quote, she loved Frida Ward better than her sisters and would give up home and friends for her. And would have to (laughs) in order to do any of the things she wanted. Uh huh. Um, but then also during the insanity trial, she was kind of indifferent to everything that was around her kind of had a lack of emotion which was unconventional um and no tears no signs of remorse uh which further reinforced like a sort of other woman unwomanly coldness um (laughs) ah yes that unwomanly (laughs) coldness but then at the same time they were also commenting on her clothes all the time that they were surprised at how feminine she was dressed Especially because of, like, the claims that she was willing to dress as a man to live with Frida as her wife. But but now she didn't have Frida, so she didn't need to do that anymore. Well, also, like, you don't Um, think that she was advised? Or is this not, this is beyond trial? I think in general, it's both. Okay. Um, Let's see. I know this is so long, but there's so much to cover. (laughs) Well, the gender um, stuff, the gender and sexuality stuff is always going to be a roller coaster, like by necessity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? 
Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Tennessee newspapers in 1892 occasionally published stories of gender ambiguity, but they described neither permanent passing nor same-sex love. So they would tell stories about somebody who dressed a certain way to get something, but not that they were permanently living as the gender not assigned to them. Oh, right. Right. Okay. But they like, there was no Um, identification with that gender. It was just. Yes. Yeah. So for example, the Rogersville Herald reported a case of Henry Armstrong, a Tennessee resident who was discovered upon his death to be a woman. Ah, because we don't exactly know what was going on right. um, with what this person. So I'm going to use they, them pronouns for now. Totally um, fair. Their diary revealed that as a young child, they, quote, hadn't loved not wisely, but too well a heartless villain who betrayed and left her. Mm. That's that person's words. Um, in order to be near to him. They disguised themselves as a man and followed him into war and even nursed him as he was dying from a wound. And this ex-love was none the wiser. But they continued to live as a man for the rest of their life. Um, The article stated that, quote, she was 60 years old, paid her poll tax and voted the Democratic ticket. So she was they were an active voter and was living life. (laughs) Uh, And nobody knew until they died that their genitalia didn't match the gender that they were performing, Um, according to them. And I bet that was a (laughs) total fucking mind fuck. Yes. Um, (laughs) We've never seen this before. No. Um, Another case described a young woman who dressed as a man because she had quarreled with her lover and he left her. Um, In order to find him again, she disguised herself as a man and took residence in a town where she knew he periodically traveled. Every day, she waited at the train depot, hoping he would arrive and eventually was rewarded. Though she was married in trousers after reuniting with her lover, she fully intended to return to her female persona. But the point of these newspaper articles is to illustrate that these were quote unquote acceptable cases of gender ambiguity because they operated within the sphere of heterosexual love theoretically oh so because they Alice decided she didn't need to wear pants and perform masculinity or perform maleness once to get close to a man (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, yeah, and to get close to a man and so it wasn't something they could understand (laughs) okay uh what these women these women adopted male personas in order to facilitate love for a man it's alice mitchell didn't do that they could like (laughs) recognize that as heterosexual 
Like mm-hmm. as heterosexual love, they could recognize that trans person's like being and love for someone of the opposite gender as heterosexual. Yeah. At that time, <sighs> that is fascinating. That's fascinating. So Alice Mitchell didn't seek higher wages in in like as dressing as a man she wasn't doing it to get higher wages as working class women might have the idea to do um she didn't seek independence or even the opportunity to do like feminine work in the public sphere as would have been acceptable for someone of her class to do she planned to assume a male identity permanently in order to maintain a married relationship with a woman Hmm. her behavior emphasized both her rejection of womanhood and her rejection of men as one witness at her insanity trial testified, Alice Mitchell told him she fully understood all that marriage implied, but insisted still that she would have married Frida Ward. Even the murder itself was committed in a decidedly Ugh. masculine manner. Mm-hmm. An editorial in the Memphis commercial called her act a manlike murder, showing an iron wheel uncharacteristic of a Victorian woman, but ironically, 1892 is the same year that Lizzie Borden killed her parents with an I was axe. wondering if we were going to hear about Lizzie Borden because I was like, I can think of another Victorian murderer who did a very, very horrific murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same year. Oh, my it's God. It's the same year. And so there began to be discussions about male and female ways to kill people. And Lizzie Borden potentially was queer also. Maybe yeah. there was a there was a friendship, a female friendship that she had for like the rest of her life that nobody dissected further than that. Right. Anyway. Um, yes. So there was a, um, a paper at the time that was talking about Lizzie Borden and Alice Mitchell and that kind of stuff and and said you know, most instances in which women are the criminal and where the crime is premeditated use poison. That makes the change in the Borden case where a brutal man's weapon, an axe or hatchet was used, strangely inconsistent, if not impossible. (laughs) A woman bent on crime will solve the problem before her in the easiest possible manner. Men used axes, women used poison. Another source maintained that pocket knives and razors were the weapon of choice among black men. So Alice's use of a razor was unusual not only for gender, but also race, is what people would say. Okay. I don't know what that has to do with anything, but it's interesting that they chose to comment on that at the time. So obviously also newspapers would talk about, you know, fashion and how when they're talking about the traditionally feminine versus the traditionally masculine like men's clothing was dark and simple and somber and women's clothing was like bright and and frivolous and all the stuff with an emphasis on decoration um and also women's clothes emphasized uh women's lack of activity for the simple reason that you couldn't do fucking anything in a goddamn corset (laughs) and a long skirt Um, Although there's a video I'm going to share with you one day about how that's like not actually true. And we have Victorian men created a lot of rumors about women in corsets and what corsets would allow them to do and not do as a method. I believe it. Anyway, it's fascinating. I'll send it to you. Maybe I'll link it in the show notes. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, here we go. We're talking about the focus on Alice's appearance in court um, as illustrated to her contested identity. They would continually describe the way she dressed from her trim foot encased in black hose and high heeled Oxford ties to her brown dress and blue jacket tastily edged with velvet to her jaunty gray sailor's hat brightened by the trimmings in which there was a touch of red. The anxiety that Alice's gender transgression produced was continually counteracted by descriptions of her as eminently female. <laughs> Alice appeared quite unconcerned about her female attire, other than she was well-groomed. Um, at the same time, she seemed to subvert the feminine character her clothes placed on her, erasing her identity within them by wearing an opaque veil over her face. Oh. Every article that described her attire also described the ubiquitous veil. But I think that she was wearing the veil because she was trying to be invisible or some shit. Um, the judge made her take it off so he could see who he was trying. <laughs> Rude. Nevertheless, her dress served as a marker of her female identity. Um, and the identity was not uncontested, obviously. <laughs> The emphasis on her feminine appearance reinforced that reinforced that the binarism of male and female still existed intact and unharmed, in spite of the fact that everyone was saying that she was behaving like a man. God. But apparently, according to newspapers at the time, uh, it elicited no sense of sisterhood among Memphis's female population. Shocker. Yeah, I mean, obviously... Her clear rejection of her gender role seemed to create strong negative reactions toward her among Memphis women, though no sources, of course, give unmediated women's voices. Uh, many articles in uh, all papers reported the overwhelming desire of many women that Alice be convicted and hanged. <laughs> okay. Women and what was apparently unprecedented behavior filled the courtroom on every possible occasion to gain a glimpse of the accused girls, which was kind of unusual at the time for women to take such an interest um, in legal matters. Representation or so matters the, or something. Uh, or something. <laughs> More than one commentator noted that Alice was lucky that women didn't sit on juries. And Southern men were oh. congratulated for their chivalry that would presumably prevent them from convicting her of first degree murder. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um... Let's see. Daily articles on Lily's trials tallied the number of women in the audience and their fascination with the unfolding narrative. The Memphis commercial stated that on the first day, there were more people at the Johnson habeas corpus proceedings yesterday morning than have ever before been gathered in the criminal courtroom of Shelby County. And more than half of them were women. Damn. The judge gave women preference seating because of chivalry. <laughs> so... an image like sketches of the trial showed an audience composed almost exclusively of women. I find this fascinating as a woman who is obsessed with true crime. And of course, knowing the statistics of like a true crime audience, mm -hmm. even today, is that it's mostly women yep. who are super into this stuff. So I think it's fascinating that it carries back even then. Um, the curiosity of these women and their desire to feast their ears was only exceeded by their fear they might overlook a meal or two in the daily progress of the trial. It was decidedly cruel and judged abose to not adjourn court and allow these public spirited women to go home and prepare dinner for their hardworking husbands. Ugh. Uh, uh, newspaper. Ugh. They Gross. were neglecting their domestic duty because they were so interested in this case. How dare they? How dare they show interest in something that relates to them in some small way? 
I find Ugh. this hilarious. The intense interest of women in the case even affected advertisements at the time. Citing an editorial in the New York Sun, an article theorized that women flocked to sensational trials because of their excessively emotional natures. Well, duh. Especially drawn to cases in which life or death comes up, a tragic case, and more especially when it has about it a mystery in which a woman is concerned and a woman of the more refined society, they follow its course with a greater intensity than men feel. I mean, that's women enjoyed pretty true. <laughs> yes, it continues. Women enjoyed having their tenderest feelings of sympathy aroused. It's only in the final two paragraphs of that uh, that the reader learned this tendency toward emotionality in women was because women were weak and largely in poor health. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the arousal of women's feelings was as much was as much a result of sickness as sympathy Uh and was therefore more part of a suffering than enjoyment. And the final paragraph was an advertisement for a woman's tonic. Oh, shit. (laughs) Got me good. Got me good. (laughs) Even if women's emotionality was the result of weakness, women interested in the Alice Mitchell case did not seem to attend the trial to arouse their tenderest sympathetic feelings. Um... Other articles clearly illustrated women's antagonism to Alice. Yeah. Which I, I that believe. Appear- I mean. Yeah. I get, but that's I get also that, scary. Yeah. Like, I get that you would be, you, you have been raised a certain way, and you have bought into it for your entire life, and here is this fucking person who decided that they didn't have to be like that, and they didn't have to buy into that shit, you're going to want to see it. You're going to want to see the person yeah. who defied all of the things that you have bought into wholeheartedly your whole life because you didn't know there was a different way to be. And also, I mean, one of the reasons women are so into true crime these days is because most crimes are perpetrated against women. And I think, like, yeah. it would be super fascinating as a woman at, at the time to see what a, you know, female murderer who creates a, quote, masculine crime looks like. Mm-hmm. Totally unheard of. But it absolutely is of interest to women. And you, it's a perfect segue because, I mean, obviously, though women's reactions to the case come only through words of men, it's obvious we don't know exactly if their reported hostility was truthful or what. Um, right. But... Nevertheless, comparing Alice's murder of Frida with contemporary gender norms sheds light on some possible motives. Women's violent reaction to the two girls can most likely be explained as a reaction to Alice's rejection of everything that defined women's roles in society. Aha! I am so sorry. Exactly what you just said. (laughs) Yes. Alice Mitchell had rejected femininity and marriage and sought to enact marriage with a woman. As such, she was especially condemned by the female population. With men speaking of chivalry, women's quote-unquote thirst for vengeance cast the ideology about Southern white men's protection of white women in a new light. And we're back to that protection of Southern white women. Protection of white women from black men in this case mutated into protection of white women from white women. (laughs) At the same time, by refusing Alice even a shred of sympathy and absolutely rejecting her state of motive... They 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 upheld and defend, defended women's unique social role, position, and values. Yeah. It says so much about the attitudes of the time, but also, like, something this... I mean, not, not 
okay, not something this small, but something as small as a sexual identity that is outside of what you would normally see at the time, creating this much of a mass existential crisis is like it shows you how delicate all of that really is you know and Mm -hmm. how like how Mm -hmm. there's been such an iron grip on all of that for so long and something like this can come in and shake it up to the point where there's advertisements talking about it and the courtroom is filled with women who don't normally go to trials and like people are just agog because they don't know how to react or how to behave and like literally all it is is the same crime we see every fucking day in this country over and over and over and over again but it's being perpetrated by someone we've been taught is gentle as a lamb yeah and that's it that's For literally a reason that it. they can't figure out like how could how could a gentle nice sweet woman be so in love with another woman that she behaves like a man. Right. I feel like so much of it is about trying to re, like, get, like, like on the part of the, the patriarchy is, is getting a grip on something that could shake it apart and, like, re- reinforcing for women who have been taught certain things like oh no those things still apply this woman was just jealous of her female friend and the male attention she was receiving or whatever like it's all perfectly normal women stuff and we're gonna prove it to you so that you don't get any fucking ideas in your head yeah it's just it's it's insane to me that they could comprehend the idea of like oh yeah a jealous lover kills their lover because they're fucking jealous and, and violent. But they could grasp that for certain contexts, but not for others. Right. Um, but like, so the, you can look at some other cases of female deviance at this time, and, but in a more heterosexual context and see how it was still, it's always a lose-lose for women. Let's be <laughs> yeah. honest. Because, okay, so for example, sexual sin was obviously tied to reproduction and but that if it was tied to reproduction it necessitated clear and unambiguous evidence of extramarital sexual activity such as the exchange of money for sex work or the presence of an out of wedlock pregnancy so like of course alice's case was neither of those things um and there was no rhetoric of ruin because she wasn't accused of bringing shame on her family or having ruined herself um which was a common theme in a lot of sexual deviance um, discussed with women uh, as the main object of the time. So, like, there was a girl named Flory Perkins. She was 16 years old, lived in Lebanon, Tennessee. Um, There were two newspapers at the time that uh, reported that she hanged herself the same year of Frida's murder. But the headline declared, quote, death before disgrace. And the accompanying story related her tale as follows. So she was an attractive girl from an eminently respectable family. Rumors in the neighborhood eventually reached her mother that Flory had, quote, conducted herself in an improper manner. Hmm. Her mother confronted her and she admitted to the indiscretion. Her mother called in several doctors uh, and the doctors verified that she was pregnant. And when she was brought to a positive realization of her impending shame, she burst into tears 
And both the doctors and her mother questioned her as to who was the author of her ruin, which she divulged after swearing them to secrecy. And after the doctors left, she told her mother she didn't want to live under such shame and went to the barn and hanged herself. Jesus. So, but one of the most egregious things to me is that one of these doctors, after Flory killed herself because she was pregnant and not married, um, the doctor said that, quote, this tragic denouement was the most fortunate occurrence that could have happened under the circumstances. Fuck you. They're basically saying it's probably for the best that she and that fetus died rather than cause shame to her family Ugh. and have an illegitimate child. Um, well, because she's totally like wrecked her whole reason for being a person, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's now unfit for marriage. She's now all this. Um, God. The paper, the paper called the whole affair unfortunate and sympathized with the mother, a widow who had no man to protect her. Whoa. Ugh. The story, however, was not over because later... The paper published a letter from a Perkins family friend who had been given permission to tell the story in order to end the rumors. And uh, in the letter, it was revealed that it was her brother who raped her and impregnated her. Uh Uh-huh. And no one doubted the truth of the statement nor the innocence of Flory, though her brother was described as, and we still see this shit today, a, quote, sober, industrious, and well-behaved man who stood high in the estimation of all who knew him. The letter stated she had no idea of her condition until examined by doctors, um, showing her ignorance of reproductive matters. Um, But her innocence didn't exonerate her because uh, though the community acknowledged that she had been, quote, made a victim of her brother's lust, she was still responsible for the, quote, grief which she had unwillingly brought upon the family. I can't. Ah, we are so fucked up. Mm Mm-hmm. Fuck. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing, like women, when women try and like prosecute for sexual assault, it's like you're going to ruin a good man's life. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, that's deeply ingrained for a reason. And though the case of Flory Perkins is horrifying, the rhetoric of ruin and shame surrounding unwed pregnancy was typical. And often young girls response to unwed pregnancy was tragic. Alice Fulkerson, a 16-year-old in Greene County, was reported to have murdered her illegitimate child, though she claimed the child died at birth. She was still called an unnatural mother, but she belongs to a good family, her father being one of the best citizens of Greene County. How nice. Yeah. How Mm -hmm. fucking nice. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Other girls, of course, resorted to illegal and unsafe abortion. Um... One case in Pennsylvania told of a respectable girl dying in great agony from the effects of a horrible bungling criminal operation, is what they called it. Um, uh, Another case in Memphis told of Ida Manning, who died at the home of a midwife who was later arrested for performing a criminal operation, an abortion. Uh, Raised by wealthy parents, she was exiled by her family when she was led astray by a man uh, who for a while supported her. Later, she determined, to, uh, she determined to lead a new life and went to work to earn her own living. Again, he haunted her footsteps, and again, she fell. The resulting pregnancy led to her death from a botched abortion. These cases, of course, suggest the double-edged sword of women's purity. And though many articles acknowledge that women lacked control over their own sexual activity, these women nonetheless had the primary responsibility for the family's reputation. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that's an example of how they treated women's sexual, quote unquote, deviance when it came to heterosexual interaction, mm-hmm. whether, you know, consensual or not. Yep. They knew um, how to do that. They knew how to treat some reason, that. Alice Mitchell did not fall in this fucking category. Which is why it's maybe so baffling to me that they were constantly trying to, like, not even exonerate her, but but give her wholesome reasons for doing what she did. It's like, you should be relishing this, shouldn't you? Yeah. Like, as a fucking yeah. society who hates fallen women and just, like, women in, like, total, you should yeah. love this. And yet... There was no rhetoric of ruin. She was not considered fallen in the standard sense. Articles rarely bemoaned the shame she brought to her family. She's a fucking murderer. And somehow she shamed her family less than these girls who got pregnant. Because like, she was are you behaving. Fucking kidding me? She was behaving like a man. <laughs> and so they fucking treated her like one. Yeah. It, Wow. I, but, but, but of course, like also at the same time, there was no shortage of violence against women at this time. Right. Like, like Memphis especially uh, was apparently um, like rapidly growing and having a lot of, of immigrants come in um, and a lot of working class people come in. And so like, social norms were shifting because you know when the rich people leave and the working class people come in like it just shifts the whole tone of a city and then gentrification is the opposite obviously several newspapers when commenting on the mitchell case averred that such an atrocity was only possible in memphis a city familiar with violence but yeah okay but violence was a male thing I still can't wrap my brain around that, that like they could not they could not figure out how to admit why she did what she did. But they still like gave her so many reasons and excuses that they would not have given women who were in their minds pure enough to deserve that. Right. And my only thought is that. Because she behaved in a masculine manner, she was treated like she was a masculine entity. But at the same time, she wasn't. Because At the same time, she wasn't. But because men at this time were essentially, to not to put a fine point on it, were given carte blanche to fucking murder their wives and mistresses if they fucking wanted to. Right. That was viewed yeah. as like a normal thing that just men did. <laughs> like they couldn't crazy. control themselves. But women couldn't initiate that kind of behavior. Right. And yet the fear still was lesbians and black men. Even though statistically, this is still true. You're more likely to be murdered by like the men in your life or raped by the men in your life. Yeah. You <laughs> teach a bunch of white dudes that they can get away with it because society is going to blame all the other people around mm-hmm. you, then of course they're going to be the ones most likely to perpetrate violence. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, obviously they weren't new to cases of violence against women and because it just the statistics tell the truth of what was happening. Like, 
women were far more at risk in their homes with their loved ones than they ever would be at the hands of black men or lesbians at a time when fears of black men and lesbians were like rampant. Yeah. That, I mean, that, and they even at the time, I mean, and obviously it was used to justify lynchings, which is insane, but then they would still vote against yeah. laws like there was a, a a law that they tried to pass about making beating your wife illegal and it didn't pass. <laughs> no, and that continued for like a way long time, didn't it? Like didn't they only just make marital rape uh illegal and like like domestic violence technically illegal in the middle or even in the late uh 20th century? Yeah, I know that the defi- the the notion like the uh what is it that you can't that you're you can't be raped by your husband only recently went out the window because obviously you fucking can yeah that was like a, like even, the late 20th century even in like into the like 30s and 40s maybe i probably have that wrong but like you as a husband you are allowed to beat your wife with a rod that was like the thickness of your thumb. And if you beat her with anything thicker than that, you could be tried or charged or whatever. But like, otherwise, it was fine. Totally cool. I mean, that shit prevailed for a long, long time. Way longer than most modern women would think. I mean, women didn't even get the right to have their own fucking credit cards or own or have their own bank accounts until the fucking 70s. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) Right. Thanks, Ruth. But anyway, there's a lot more interesting shit that that Lisa has to say in her piece. Like she delves further into it. Obviously, most of this came from from Lisa Lindquist's piece. Uh, but I think I'm going to end it there because I think that mm-hmm. you get more than enough information about. But I find it a fascinating story. And there's uh, 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 a book about it that Jennifer Kent, the director of The Babadook, is turning into a movie. Um, cool. I think it's like currently in pre-production. And uh, it's just like I it's another one of those things where I'm like, how have I not heard about this? Like, this is sensational. This is all that they could talk about in 1892 in Memphis. Not that I have, like, any reason to know what Memphis news is historically, but, like, come on. But it was, I I mean, it was, like you said, it was sensational. I think that's a great word for it. It was, like, totally just turned everything these people thought they knew about violent crime on its head. Yeah. And then was forgotten, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe Lizzie Borden totally... Um, could overshadowed be. the whole could thing. Be. Could be, um, especially because it was a, it was more easily yeah. defined. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I it wasn't it, there maybe was no, because like, it was about lesbianism. They were like, oh, mm-mm. oh God, we don't know. We what don't. To we do don't with talk this. about that. We don't talk about that. We, they never <laughs> figured out how to spin the story so that it was like, you know, I mean, Lizzie Borden murdered her family with what fifty wax or something. Like we all know what mm-hmm. happened. And that, you know, the specifics and with Alice, it's like, like, we cannot put a label on why or figure out why. And so, of course, Mm -hmm. you'd want to sweep that under the rug at a certain point. Yes, exactly. Uh, 
that well, especially in, in the, the prudeness of like the mid century, mid twentieth century, where we definitely yeah. don't want to talk about gays in any way because it, that it's it's they they had a more of a categorical way of defining it, and we're like, nope, don't like it. <laughs> Sin. Did you ever watch Tipping the Velvet? <laughs> no. Oh, God. It's a BBC miniseries from like 2008, maybe. And Tipping the Velvet is, do you know what that is? Uh, remind me. It is a very coy um, phrase that refers to um, oral sex, women performing oral sex on each other and so tipping the velvet (laughs) and but it was based on a book um but it's all about like lesbian life in victorian england and it's super fascinating um because they kind of go through the various like you know butch lesbians how they managed to to be that way and portray that um and like sex toys and like all sorts of interesting ways that lesbians found each other and were with each other at that time but anyway some of this kind of made me think about like tipping the velvet and and all of the ways that that lesbians had to get around all of the shit that we just talked about in order to just live normal lives with each other right it's so fascinating. <laughs> well, there you have oh, it. Oh, my God. Dude, that was insane. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did, because I've been, like, deep in it for the last few days, just reading these pieces about the insanity of of this and the culture at the time and why it was so confusing but still sensational. And I don't know. Dude, I feel like... I don't know. I I think that it got my gears turning just about mm-hmm. about the the thought process people had at the time and why and and like indoctrination and again like I don't mean to you know beat a dead horse is that the phrase uh, but like I think it's super important to be thinking about those things and and kind of understanding these more antiquated. Um, situations and points of view because they aren't antiquated. They are still in use today. And yep. we're seeing a resurgence of a lot of that in our politics. And um, it doesn't come from nowhere. So I think it's really important, even through things like this, that are just, you're talking about a single event, technically, but it is a broader commentary on, like, lots of different things and mm-hmm. thinking of the time. So I don't know. I, I actually, it, maybe it feels really sensational and and like, I don't know, we're talking about a murder, but I actually feel like it's kind of important. To, it, like it's a super important topic. Uh, so. I agree. Yeah. I thought, I think that's really cool. And you're a badass. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I give most credit to Lisa, but <laughs> Whatever. We're, we're friends. You... We're on a first name basis. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I like it. Oh, but, dude, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And uh, sh- should we uh, try and get out of here for today and uh, 
give people some respite until next week. Yeah, let's for do more it. wonderful feminist ranting. <laughs> let's do it. I think okay. uh, to to lighten your load as you as you leave um, this episode, go check out Bardcore on YouTube because it's a new discovery of mine that is my favorite thing ever, and it's basically this artist takes modern songs and makes them medieval and oh. it's the best thing well, yeah, ever. this is what you're excited about which i'm i totally was trying to gloss past for no reason i'm so sorry no no that's okay it's a <laughs> tiny thing but i feel like it's super like it it's just if you need a smile if you need something to like you know just i think chill that's out awesome. too it's the best it's, thing i just discovered like, um, it what is that like something jukebox where they they make things like 20s 30s 40s yes but it's like that but for even further back (laughs) exactly and so they replace a lot of like if there are if there's any mention of like anything modern they turn that medieval too so they aren't just making the songs medieval sounding they're how creative they're making the lyrics and stuff medieval and the one that they just put out today um is the one that I never remember the name of it, but it's the Enya song, the Sail Away song. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sail away, sail away, sail away. They just did that one as a bardcore song, and it's so good. It's so good. So anyway, that's going to be, I think, on Spotify soon, but I don't know when, so YouTube is where you'll find that. All right. I'm going to check That's that all I out. have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that said... Um, you can find us on Patreon, although I would be very happy if any of our listeners would donate to Stacey Abrams this uh, this month because there is a Senate runoff um, election happening in January, and we need to make sure that um, <laughs> Democrats get as many votes as they possibly can. Otherwise, mm-hmm. like... Mitch McConnell stays in charge of the Senate and will continue to uh, block anything that a Democratic president uh, would try and accomplish. Yeah. And we all know that he is the devil. And literally, he's also turning deal with him. Yeah. He's yeah. It's just like it's all awful and bad and you don't want it. So like help Stacey Abrams. A, register new voters in Georgia to help win that fight, but also get people who did vote to go vote again. So that's fair fight. um, And I will put a link to that in our show notes. So that's going to be what I would love for you to donate to this month. And um, otherwise, you can find us on social media at GWBB Podcast. We're everywhere. You can email us, gwbbpodcast.com or at gmail.com. And uh, uh, leave us a review if you're so inclined. We love reviews. They're very nice. And um, I think I covered it all. I think you did. So, hell yeah. With with all of that out of the way, uh, peace out, witches. Bye. Don't murder your lovers. (laughs) Good advice for all. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. 
Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty and much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.